like how many times have you run into a software company that goes extinct because their tool is too specialized and they've niched down to a tiny niche that loves their software, loves it like it's their child because it's so finely adapted to the problems that they face every day. But if conditions change a little bit and that tiny customer class goes away, then your software has no value. So we're always walking a tightrope between being broad enough that we can address the largest addressable market, but then also being specific enough that we can be finely tuned to some group of customers' problems. And so that's kind of like how the analogy shows up in commercial software, in my view. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. Today, we take a look at what we can learn from evolutionary biology when it comes to our software development process. Specifically, we look at degeneracy and its relationship to redundancy. This conversation was so delicious, we had to break it into two parts. So sit back and enjoy deconstructing everything you thought you ever knew about software development. Joining me in the CTO studio, we have Aaron Longwell, who is the Software Development Manager at Serverless Application Experience at AWS. Scott Graves is the CTO at Reps & Co. and also a founding partner at ScaleTech. Judah McCauley is the Associate Director of Engineering at Tenuity. And let's do this. Welcome to the CTO studio, long-time friends of mine. I'm so jazzed to have this conversation. I watched our thinking evolve in around degeneracy, around software systems, ecosystems, learning from biology. And Aaron has been our leading voice around thinking about these things. And so I want to kick off with Aaron. Tell us about what we're talking about. Well, yeah. What are we going to talk about? Here we go. <laughs> I think the topic kind of centers around degeneracy. I gave a talk at a 7CTOs conference a couple of years ago about it. And I think it's useful to probably talk about the background a little bit. So I had a startup that failed and was trying to figure out why. Ultimately, it was because we couldn't adapt our software fast enough to track the market. And I started looking in all the computer science literature, didn't find a whole lot of answers, started looking in evolutionary biology and found some really interesting things, which center around this idea of degeneracy, which I first came across in, I think it's paper by James Whitaker in 2010. Yeah. Essentially what that paper is about is about how degeneracy is this missing piece that unlocks understanding how organisms in nature can be both evolvable and robust because normally those two things are are somewhat at odds. So the first big idea that came out of that paper is that in order to be robust you first have to be complex and in software we often think of complexity as a problem but evolutionary biologists understand that you can't be robust without being complex because the world is complex. And the only way you can become complex is by evolving to that state. But the problem is once you become robust, you are robust to a particular context and you 
lose some of its ability to evolve. And degeneracy is the key that unlocks that loop so that you can stay evolvable even while you're robust. And so a definition of degeneracy, it's similar to redundancy. So redundancy is having capabilities that can do the same thing. Something can stand in for another thing. Degeneracy is the same thing, except it's depending on context. So a good example of degeneracy are our musculature system. I was talking about this with Judah the other day. You have certain muscles in your body that are designed to move your limbs in different directions. But if one of those muscles is injured, the muscles next door can sort of fill in. They're not as good at it. So degeneracy is often a degraded version subbing in for something else, but it still works. And so that being able to have something work in one context and have something else being able to sub into that space in another context is a key feature, which opens up all kinds of questions about, should we be as focused on efficiency as we usually are? So yeah, I'll start it with that and let the others jump in. So I love talking about degeneracy because like people always assume that it's like, oh, Judah, you're a degenerate. And I was like, well, yes, but that's not the kind that we're talking about here. But it's a fundamentally interesting topic. For those who don't know, including probably Etienne, I'm a self-taught developer, but my actual academic background got degrees in mathematics and evolutionary biology, ecology and evolution. So like that was really my jam in uh, college. And so when I started talking with Aaron uh, about some of these things, I was like, oh, I've got like, I can totally see these parallels, you know, you're making there. And a lot of them uh, really hold, but not only from evolutionary and uh, biology and ecology, but also from dynamic systems theory, which is fundamentally, you end up with these systems that are dynamic in discrete dynamic systems and nonlinear systems in math, they describe a lot of biological systems because they're fundamentally based on feedback loops. You run through an iteration once, and then the end result of that feeds back into the beginning of the next iteration. And biological systems just kind of fundamentally work that way. They do not tend to be uh, linear systems. And so the way we do software development now in particular, focusing on the iterations of systems, and trying to do small iterations, checking, and then using that feedback cycle into the next iteration ends up mapping a lot of, obviously there's huge differences in the particulars, but the overall patterns can end up looking very similar and having a lot of applicability to one another because the fundamental mechanisms involved in how we evolve software systems and how we evolve biological systems ends up being at a macro level, having a lot of similarities just structurally. So I think that we always have to be careful with making analogies and, you know, metaphors and such. You can get seduced into thinking, oh, this must be exactly how it works because, you know, that's how it works over here. That's not true, but it doesn't mean that we can't do a lot of pattern recognition, which I think, you know, serves us well when we can see how one system works and apply that thinking over to others. So I was very excited to start talking with Aaron about it because I think there is a lot of really good stuff to map in there. Excellent. Scott? When I was, I want to say, a teenager, an early young adult, I read Richard Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker. I came from, you know, a religious background. I grew up in the South. 
in the Baptist church. So I had heard Reverend Paley's sort of attack on evolution, which was that if you were walking down the beach and you came across a watch, like a pocket watch, you would look at this complex object that appears to be specially adapted to a very narrow purpose to tell the time. And you would sort of immediately assume that there was a designer there because the watch was so finely tuned to be able to tell time and so specialized, right? And I didn't really know anything about evolution at the time or how, you know, adaptation was supposed to work. And so my introduction to that was the blind watchmaker. And Richard Dawkins' point in there was that evolution is a watchmaker, but the watchmaker is blind. It doesn't know from minute to minute what the conditions are going to be and what it's going to have to adapt to. So it's slowly over time by, you know, accumulating these small adaptations that you can get the pocket watch. You can get this complex, highly adapted object. And it wasn't until years later that I made the connection with software development because I got introduced to Ward Cunningham's idea of technical debt in the 90s, or it might have been the early 2000s. Ward Cunningham's point there was that he didn't use these words, but that the software developer is a bit like a blind watchmaker too, in that we don't know from minute to minute what requirements our customers are going to give us. And he talked about technical debt being the difference between um, how you've designed your system now and how it works and how that problem is going to be given to you in the future. Like, how your knowledge is going to evolve over time and then how you're going to like as a person, not being natural selection, but as a person going to then adapt the system to your new understanding of the problem. And those things just seemed really similar to me. As I was getting older through my 20s, I learned a lot more about evolutionary biology. I learned about, for example, the Cambrian explosion, where like all of a sudden there was this adaptive radiation where we had like this massive speciation event. And it was pretty mysterious for a long time until we learned that, hey, it might have had something to do with the duplication of body segments. If you've like accidentally copied like five copies of the same body segment, then a few of those or some of those could then be adapted to a different purpose without like interrupting your ability to walk. If you got a few extra body segments floating around out there, right? And uh, people think that, you know, maybe like changes in the homeobox genes and the duplication of body segments and the addition of redundant information to the system might have been what drove the Cambrian explosion. And those things just seem so similar to problems that I've addressed in software development of like having things that can be adapted to a different purpose, like existing in your system. When I heard Aaron's talk on that, my brain just caught on fire. And I was like, oh my God, people are actually talking about this. And I thought this was just sort of like a strange idea that I had in my back pocket I'd never talked about. Yeah, there's a lot of fertile ground there. So I've been reading and working a little bit lately. I'm still working on my book. It's coming along very slowly. But the thread that I'm on most right now is kind of the idea of failing forward, that understanding that you have to fail Failing is how you collect feedback about how your current adaptations are working. And that's constantly changing. As the environment changes, you may be more or less suited to the environment than you were before. 
And so being more intentional about how you fail and being careful about how you learn from failure, the, the concept I've been thinking about is sort of failing forward to take opportunities where you can fail in a way that's not fatal as a way to move to a different space. Judah probably knows the most about this, I'm guessing, but there's a uh, concept called the adjacent possible. So in genetic networks, like variations, errors happen one copying unit of the gene at a time. And so when that modification happens, now you're in a new, there are people that work on this in you know, simulated multidimensional space. And so when an error happens, you've now moved to a different space in that genetic network, which now makes other things possible that weren't possible before, because the evolutions which are now possible are you know, from a new spot in the network. And so thinking about like, you know, having psychological safety in a team to make people be confident about, well, tried this idea, didn't work, saying, well, like, what can we take from that? Let's not throw it away. Like, we may want to merge that code anyway, even if it didn't do what we wanted it to do. Let's try to understand what it enables or what we can learn from it. I'm working a lot more how to apply this in actual teams. And I think that's what I'd like to explore a lot more. That's uh, something that Aaron and I were talking about earlier this week. You know, I think there's a number of key things that lay folks don't necessarily completely grasp on evolution and its mechanisms that are surprisingly powerful. One of them is, you know, when we think about mutation, which is one of the primary drivers of evolution, you know, you have genetic recombination and sometimes there are transcription errors and mutations arise. Things are not copied perfectly. You know, that's just a normal part of things. And so we think about mutation from a cultural standpoint as being very exceptional. You know, you think about the X-Men and the mutants and things like that. But in nature, most mutations are evolutionarily neutral. It's just a thing. It neither makes things particularly better. You don't develop spidey powers. And it also doesn't just like kill you. Either of those, you know, sorts of scenarios are extreme outliers. The bulk of mutations are just the thing. And similarly in software development, and the way I think about it is like, what's one of the hard problems that we talk about in software development? Naming things. Like naming things is recognized as a hard problem. But when you pull back, like how much of an effect do two different names for the same function end up doing? So you could have an extreme where somebody names a method in a way that is completely perfect. Like you know exactly what it's gonna do, it's completely obvious, save someone a few seconds, maybe like 30 seconds of going in and like reading the method. You might have somebody else who does the complete opposite where they name it something that sends you in exactly the wrong direction and like wastes time of developers who think they know what the function did because they met the name. But the bulk of them, of the outcomes are going to be like, yeah, it's stylistic preference, right? Like maybe it's better, maybe it's worse from some particular criteria, but overall it does not really matter that much, even though it is one of the acknowledged hard problems in software development. And so learning to recognize 
what changes in our systems are actually fitness related. Fitness is a technical concept in evolution about how likely things are to be passed along, how well adapted you are to a particular environment, how likely you are to pass along, you know, your genes. But like, does it affect, do the changes we make in a system actually affect the fitness in the system or of the system? Or are they just neutral? Are we spending a lot of time on changes that are not really moving the needle one way or another? And how do we differentiate those changes so we can focus on the ones that genuinely have fitness implications for our systems? Yeah, fitness is an interesting concept because because evolution is a blind watchmaker. And in certain ways, we are blind watchmakers because we don't know what the future is going to hold for our problem space. It's kind of hard to know by looking at the software as it is today, what attributes of the system are actually going to be useful for future adaptation. One paper that's been really influential on me is Gould's paper, The Spandrels of San Marcos, where he talked about in St. Mark's Cathedral, which later had the privilege of going like seeing those in person. He talked about in St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, how when a barrel vault meets a wall, it creates a little space, a little curved space called Spandrel. And when the people who built St. Mark's Cathedral built it, they had to have these spaces because if you don't have a barrel vault, you know, you can't hold the roof up. And so they saw a blank space on the wall there. And so they they painted a little saint in it, right? Because they want to decorate every surface. But the idea is that they did not, the spandrels were not created to give them a spot to paint, right? It was just sort of an accident of history or like had more to do with what it takes to hold the roof up than having spaces to decorate. So it kind of like inverted the logic there and pointed out that, hey, that evolution and like software developers work with what they have, right? They work with the system as it is because you can't just throw out all your software and start over every time the problem changes a little bit. So there has to be material of some kind in your software that you don't know what it's for ahead of time. It's just like a well of complexity that you can tap into when the system changes or when there's an opportunity to adapt. So the idea is that you can't look at your software and know what's going to be important to adapting it to a changing problem space ahead of time. Some of these things that you're going to have in your software system are spandrels. And only when the opportunity arises for you to adapt your system can become obvious to you. Actually, I can use that to address this problem space without throwing all my software out. We'll be back. And we're back. I used to have this feeling like when I was working on code where like the code evolves over time and sometimes like do a refactoring or you sort of take an opportunity to look at a, the code really holistically and you see parts of it you're like i remember when i wrote that function and built the system to have classes that related in that particular way and now all that looks stupid right like it doesn't look like it should like i should rewrite it now because i've learned all these things about 
the world that are different. And like, I think it boiled down to like this need for aesthetics or neatness, like to get this mess out of there. And I think as I've worked with more other people's code, dealing with legacy code, I've started to really appreciate this idea. I don't know if you've heard of this before, that of Chesterton's fence. So this is the story of a farmer who sees a fence that's literally going across a road. And the wisdom of Chesterton's fence is that you can never take that fence down until you understand why it's there. Like literally until you can make the argument for why the fence should be there, (laughs) you shouldn't take it down because the fence is there. Like people had limited resources in the past and they had a limited amount of wood and they had a limited amount of time and they built the fence in that particular spot and they built it across a road, which doesn't make sense now in the context of what we're looking at, but at one time it did. And so you have to understand why is that there and have second order thinking is one of the sort of side concepts there. And I think as I've worked in more systems and realized like there's parts of that that I might not understand what the value of that was. And the fact that it's there creates this new problem space where something else could potentially evolve. Like that could be potentially useful. I think in the talk, there's a tweet that somebody likes to troll by saying, never calling legacy code, legacy code, calling it revenue code, because by definition, that's the code that makes the money. Like the business exists. That code is the reason why money comes in the door, almost by definition of the fact that it exists. It's weird how things change. I didn't learn about Chesterton's fence until this year. But well before I learned about Chesterton's fence, I read Joel Swoski's legendary blog post, Never Do This. And the never do this he was talking about was never throw out all the code that's built up over the years. And, oh, we did that with Netscape, and it was a disaster. And I've seen in my career two or three people who maybe had never heard of Joel Splosky, but they did that. And he's right. It always fails. Because... When you go and you look at a piece of code, like people who are not in software, I always tell them, every piece of software you admire, every piece of software that you think is great, that you're impressed with, if you could go peel the curtain back on that, you'd be shocked at how hard to understand and complicated and garbagey the code looks. And that's because all that stuff in there that you think is garbage is not garbage. These problem spaces we build software for are so complicated, like we have to follow this algorithm of changing it in small bits over time, a little bit like evolution. The way that that shows up at the end of that process is a bunch of systems that if you change any part of it slightly, it gets out of balance and it it stops working. But all of the stuff that's in there, which Joel Splosky calls hair, growing hair on the code, right? is really just is the sum total of this evolution-like, it's not really evolution, but evolution-like process of making a lot of small changes over time. And Joel Splosky makes the point, and the others on this call made the point, is that that is value. That nastiness you see in there is the value that's accumulated in the system over time by these small steps. And we need to start appreciating that and treating it with the respect that it deserves. I'm going to challenge that a little bit. Do it. I'm going to go with the heterodoxy here. Everything you said is true, 
if conditions stay stable. That's part of the thing is so there's this notion in landscape ecology, which is, you know, ecology at landscape levels called disturbance regimes. And so all ecosystems undergo various disturbances. Rain's hard, there's a drought, fire comes through, earthquakes, volcanoes, you know, etc. And the notion there is like various parts from the tiniest little bit up to the landscape level, how do they respond to disturbances that come in? So like I live in Oregon in the uh, west side, and we've got these, you know, wonderful, gorgeous old growth forests that are incredibly resilient. Like, you know, the uh, big storms come through, handfuls of trees get knocked down and such. You might have a, you know, big ice storm, the trees go down, but those trees go down, open up holes in the canopy that's otherwise, you know, fairly dark. And then new things start growing on top of the downed trees. Like it forms a even more complex layer for new things to evolve. And you've got the source trees around that will seed it. And you've got all the animals that come in. And so it's a very resilient ecosystem structurally to disturbance. But now we're seeing as climate change impacts things, the types of disturbances, and especially as we have limited fire, which is one of the natural disturbance forces through our ecosystems, we're seeing a bunch of, you know, disease trees not getting taken out. We're seeing a bunch of, you know, drought that has not happened in several thousand years that a lot of these systems, you know, have been in place. And so now we're seeing how do they adapt to these new different kinds of disturbance regimes, the different types of forces and the different severity of them and the different frequency over them. Because all these systems, you know, we think about them structurally, but it also has a time dimension to it. They're, you know, at least four-dimensional. And so thinking about how we see now these very resilient systems for a certain set of conditions evolve in the face of a different set of conditions and different disturbance regimes, you end up thinking about these systems in a very different way. And so I think for a lot of people like, you know, Joel, thing you're saying is correct. But then if you have rapidly changing conditions, then you very well may see those systems be so much harder to reason about and so much harder to evolve in a more largely disturbed direction. Like if you have to make rapid, larger scale changes, they might be much, much less resilient in those kinds of environments. And so I think to some extent, there's some selection bias in how he sees those things. I think you're right. And I think that it's always this trade-off, isn't it, between understandability versus adaptability, right? So like the more hair that you grow on your code, sort of the less understandable it becomes. It becomes more finely adapted to the problem, but it becomes less understandable because you read the code and you have no idea why there is this particular condition on this switch statement. Like, why did they add this to the switch statement? What weird condition prompted them to do this? If you understand your problem very well, you can like take all of that out. You can adapt your design to that problem and it's more understandable, but then it's also less adaptable. So that axis of understandability versus adaptability, I think is what we're talking about here in the context of software development. And I believe you were talking about 
adaptive landscapes on your talk, which I think might be a good thing to introduce into this particular part of the discussion. We should get into the adaptive landscapes. There's a piece though, of this conversation that I reminded me of the when Judah and I got together earlier this week, where I was talking about my boss, the first startup I worked at, the CEO or COO had a Ferrari and he sometimes let the engineers borrow it. And I remember asking him like, what's it like to own a Ferrari? And he said, it sucks. And the reason is that the engine is so finely tuned that you have to go to a specific kind of mechanic to get the oil changed. And it's like two grand just to change the oil. And you cannot push it beyond certain limits. And if you do, you have major damage to the engine. And he says, I really liked having an Acura NSX because it's a Honda engine. It's much more robust, much more reliable. And I think Judah and I were talking about the spectrum between the Ferrari engine and the Honda engine, right? There's a certain amount more resilience in the Honda design because it's not designed to be as efficient. It's not designed to be as, to only work at the top of its game, so to speak. It's maybe a little less performant potentially, but way more reliable. And I think when I started on this journey, I was looking at my code and saying like, well, how can I make my code more like the Honda engine than the Ferrari engine because we were too well optimized. But there's a whole different, so that's the scale of engineering resilience. But ecological resilience, what Judah's talking about, it's a whole different scale. Like if there's a Ferrari engine on one side and a Honda engine in the middle, the cockroach is like at the totally other end. Like a cockroach can survive through anything. And you look at it from outside and you wouldn't say, oh, that's the beautiful thing like a Ferrari engine, but it's way more reliable than either of them. And I, the thing that I started really paying attention to is that the thing that matters here isn't like how much hair is on the code or how well the code works. It's how well the system around the code, most of which is people, how well that works. And like turning to myself and realizing like, oh, I'm trying to make my code more adaptable and completely forgetting that the thing that makes my code the most adaptable is me and like how I approach it and how I work with the team and starting to think about like how it's a much wider system. And I think, I guess the thing I would push back on the blind watchmaker thing a little bit is that like, if we think of ourselves as the watchmaker, having all the information inside ourselves, we can sort of let our egos get in the way and not be open to the fact that like, well, what we're doing might be wrong. Like maybe we have the wrong idea about the world and being more careful to take feedback and to try new things and not think that we know the answer all the time. So I'll try to segue to the fitness landscape question now that essentially there's wherever we are in a virtual space. So fitness landscapes are kind of thought of in terms of the environment. So if you're in an environment where you have lots of green trees that you can get energy from, if you can adapt to eat them like a panda bear is very well adapted to eat bamboo and their limbs are like not very good for running but good enough for holding bamboo so that they can eat it that's an adaptation to that landscape that they're in and as the landscape changes so judah was talking about climate change as the bamboo forests shrink panda bears might have a limited amount of space they can live in 
maybe a better example of this is there are fish that are capable of swimming in essentially freezing water. And that capability lets them roam further in the cold areas around the Arctic. And so they can feed in wider areas. So thinking about how well is our team adapted to the landscape we're in? And I think that can be everything from hiring. Like, you know, it's hard to hire really senior engineers right now. So maybe the adaptation you need to think about is maybe you should learn how to train inexperienced engineers. So things like that, just being open to being aware of the landscape you're in and how to adapt to it. One interesting thing about adaptive landscapes is that you can get stuck on them. Adaptive landscapes, the idea is that like you can imagine there's a hidden realm of fitness. Imagine that we have like a three-dimensional graph where the height represents the fitness, like how fit you are, how likely you are to survive. And the, the two other directions is it just represents the space that you could adapt to, like all the options that you have for changing your software, let's say. Different spots on that plane are going to have different heights associated with them that represent the fitness. So we can imagine it being like maybe smooth rolling hills, or maybe it's really spiky because, you know, even changing your software system a little bit is going to make it totally unfit for purpose as a tool. And we can imagine in the, on that fitness landscape, there might be very deep dips, like a bowl, right? And we can then use, you know, maybe the force of gravity to sort of represent death. It's like if you're at the bottom of a bowl and you try to push it in any direction, it's going to roll back down to the bottom of the bowl. So if you want to move, say, a marble from one bowl to the other, you're going to have to push it really hard. You're going to have to push it uphill to the top of the rise, then roll it down to an adjacent bowl. So you have to put in like a lot of energy to move it from bowl to bowl. So you can get stuck in a place. You can be finely adapted to a problem, and you're so finely adapted to it that to make it fit for even a very close or very adjacent problem, then you have to make it very unfit to get it to the point where it's, you know, even better. And I feel like we run into these things all the time. And I feel like the words that we use for that are technical debt, right? Oh, no, I have a better understanding of my problem right now. I understand now that I'm over in this little dip in the fitness landscape. And actually, I need to be over here. But to do that, I have to refactor my whole system and put all this energy into the software to make it adapted to this slightly different problem, right? To the user, it's just slightly different. Oh, we're just a few inches over in the fitness landscape. But I have to do some crazy things to my software to get it there because it's so finely adapted to the problem right now as I understand it. And that's, I think, what Judah might have been referencing about organisms that are finely adapted to their environment are vulnerable because even small changes in the conditions can create a situation where those organisms cannot adapt. And there's plenty of software that we make that cannot adapt because it's too finely tuned. And how tolerant we are of how finely tuned it is and how much we can cope with that, because there's a price to not being finely tuned, right, as well. Because if you have a system that has all of this material in it for adaptation, then increases the complexity of the system. 
So we're walking this tightrope between the complexity of the system and it being simple because it's adapted to something specific, right? And if you go too far in either direction, you're on your way to death. And remember that software is like a continuous process. You've got the product people always trying to adapt, trying to like tune their understanding of the customer space, right? And then software developers take that tuning of the understanding of the problem space and like try to tune the software to it. Like how many times have you run into a software company that goes extinct because their tool is too specialized and they've niched down to a tiny niche that loves their software, loves it like it's their child because it's so finely adapted to the problems that they face every day. But if conditions change a little bit and that tiny customer class goes away, then your software has no value. So we're always walking a tightrope between being broad enough that we can address the largest addressable market, but then also being specific enough that we can be finely tuned to some group of customers' problems. And so that's kind of like how the analogy shows up in commercial software, in my view. It's fascinating because you're describing a different element of fitness landscapes than what I, I don't think the talk that you saw, but a different talk. I described a different description, but what you're talking about, I think it was Etienne who taught me, it might Etienne or Michael Saul, about the curve of growth, about how when you're trying to improve, we have this illusion that we're just going to constantly get better. We're just going to learn a new skill this week. And so we're going to, we're at level eight in skills and next week we'll be at level nine. That some of the early seven CTOs sessions I remember essentially about like, it takes effort to learn a new skill. And so if you're at level eight now, you should expect to be at level six for a while while you're learning what it's like to work at level nine. That's what you're describing as sort of the energy to get out of the hump that you're in. What's interesting about that is that I was describing in one of my talks about how you can also get stuck at the top of a hill in the fitness landscape, where if you are looking at what you're doing and you're like, oh, you know, it would be a little bit better if we could make, you know, this particular queue run at double the rate it's running at right now, you know, and we can get a little bit better at that. You can perfectly optimize for like an architecture where you have a bunch of things streaming into the system and you dump it in a queue and you process it really quickly and you're done. You can reach the top of that hill, like the queue-based design pattern, whatever you're using, you're at the top of that. And you've never tried like, completely different approach, which might be a much higher hill, very, very far away that you would only really come across if you randomly try something different. And so the role of allowing some randomness and some mess into problem solving, just so that you explore a different hill than the one you're on, so that you're not constantly climbing up one of the smallest hills in the landscape, basically. But I think both are true. You can get stuck in a place where it's an easy place to stay because you're sort of like hovering in a bowl where you've got, you know, a lot of inertia to keep doing something a certain way and you're surviving just fine and not putting the effort to go climb a hill and go somewhere else. But you can also get stuck in saying, yeah, we've nailed this. Like we know exactly how to do what we're doing. And because we've done that, we're not going to try anything else because we're at the top. So I think it, it applies in both directions. This has been a great conversation so far, but we're going to stop that right there. And I can't wait for you to hear the rest of our conversation 
which we'll be releasing in part two next week.